sometimes I'm in the stand for whitetails in September. You know, at that time they're they're usually pretty patternable up until they lose velvet, then they change patterns again, and it, sometimes I can't pick them up until pre-rut, and then they'll start, of course, checking does, and then you get into rut, and all hell breaks loose. Those bucks running around chasing does and being in the right spot at the right time is very magical. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. I'm Sam Weaver, host of today's Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well-informed for your next adventures. Today's guest is a stone-cold killer from South Dakota, Jared Bloomgren. Jared hunts all across the West and is consistently putting big critters in the back of his truck. Just this season, he killed a really good elk, a giant antelope, and the amazing whitetail you see on the cover. This leads us straight into today's show, whitetails. With all the game we have in the West, it seems like whitetails can be a bit underwhelming but maybe they shouldn't be. We are recording this and the rut is about to kick off. Exciting times and we are going to talk about them. Welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, I appreciate it. Glad to be here. So it's the 1st of November. I'm trying to crank this thing out before I leave to go whitetail hunting. I know you've been out a bunch already this year. Yeah, you know, I actually just got out of the blind with my son here about, oh, half hour, 45 minutes ago. It's his first season with a rifle being able to take a buck so it's been pretty exciting stuff being able to see his excitement going along on his first hunt and it's it's something to look forward to that's for sure especially being his first yeah and i know a lot of the western hunters out there really don't give too much mind to whitetail hunting and i just kind of want to touch on it it's one of my favorite trips i make every year um i head back to the midwest to missouri and do a trip every year for sure. And then I've hunted a few other places, whitetails. I guess on this show, we're just going to kind of touch on the benefits of whitetails and kind of a basic approach. Maybe later in the month or something, we'll get into tips and tactics, but we'll have to see how that all plays out. So what do you like about whitetail hunting, Jared? The thing is about me is I grew up in an area where mule deer hunting and whitetail hunting kind of go hand in hand. You know, you can pick or choose what you're going to do, whether it's whitetail or mule deer. Um, I'm not too far out west, so to speak. So in order to expand my seasons, I can look at chasing whitetail or chasing mule deer, depending on the year. A lot of times it's it's all depending on what kind of animals I'm finding, whether it's going to be I'm going after mule deer or going after whitetail. It's just another way to expand your seasons. Like you say, you know, you're looking at Missouri, you got Kansas, you got all those states to the east of where I'm at, even in the Dakotas. It opens up a lot more opportunity for you to to expand seasons and to hunt another animal and get outside the realm of elk, bighorn, sheep, and mule deer. Um, it's just another way to expand on those seasons. For me, um, you know, I live in Utah. Almost all of our tags are draw. 
it can be super frustrating um, not to get a tag. But one of the things I do notice about whitetails, especially somewhere like Missouri, the tags are a lot cheaper. You know, it's a lot cheaper to chase a whitetail than to get an out-of-state elk tag for sure. You know, a lot of these tags are over-the-counter. You don't have to draw. You basically just show up, buy your tag, and go. And they have super long seasons, you know. I know in Missouri you can hunt from September 15th to sometime in January, January 15th, I think. You know, it's pretty impressive, and you can work it into your schedule however you need to. Absolutely. There's a lot of opportunity out there that a lot of guys don't think about. Um, I myself, I haven't ventured over into a lot of other states for whitetail, mostly just the Dakotas because it's such ample opportunity here. But I have been looking into going to Illinois, and it's not hard to get a tag even in Illinois. Um, are you going to go over there and hunt some of those counties that are known for the giant bucks? Probably not. You know, that's you, unless you're going with an outfitter. But there is a lot of public land out there. A lot of guys might get a little shy about it when they start thinking hunting another state, whether it be Kansas, Missouri, Illinois. But if you do the research, look at the tags, and you're absolutely right, the prices of some of those tags are astronomically less than what you'd pay for an out-of-state elk hunt. And long seasons, like you said, there's, there's great opportunity to be had there. One of the other things I want to mention, too, you know, you don't have to come to the Midwest to hunt whitetails. You know, there's western whitetails. We got Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, even into Colorado. You know, and a lot of those are separate tag from mule deer tags too. So you could have mule deer tag and a whitetail tag in some of these places. Absolutely. Yep. There's a, when I hunt Montana, if I have that general big game combo, um, a lot of that's good for either mule deer or whitetail. I'll set off into a tract of land not knowing if it's going to be a mule deer hunt or a whitetail hunt. You know, some of those states, they have both of it. They offer both, and it's really nice. You know, it's really diverse in what kind of style of hunting you want to do, and that's going to kind of shift you whether you're going to be chasing mule deer or you're going to be chasing the whitetail. But there's a lot of flexibility there. I know a lot, especially in Montana, you know, they have a lot of uh, walk-in areas, big tracts of land, and you could do a lot of spot and stock. You know, in Missouri, it's a lot smaller parcels. For me, part of the enjoyment I get is is j it's just different, right? Like, you could do a lot of spot and stock in some places, but, you know, in Missouri on these small, small parcels, you're hunting tree stands. And it could be frustrating. I know a lot of people think, man, I couldn't sit there all day. But it really opens your senses up to really have to hone in what's going on on around you in such a small area and here in utah we don't have the hardwoods like you have there i remember when i first got to missouri and i'll be like you could see 60 yards it's just crazy to me it's mind-blowing after coming out west and being able to glass for miles yeah yeah it is you know i i tend to have a short ex attention span so the open plains of hunting mule deer and in the mountains hunting elk uh, when you're forced to sit in a tree stand or a blind for extended periods, it can really test your wits. But it's that one time you connect, or if you know there's quality deer in the area, uh, especially if there's a buck you're after in the area, it, it can force you to stay on stand for longer periods than what you think about doing. I've spot and stalked a lot of whitetails too. Uh, killed several in the tree stand. If I can spot and stalk, it's usually my choice. But some of these bucks that I've hunted is just, that's not an option. Sitting in the tree stand is the way to go and make yourself as comfortable as you can. There's something therapeutic about sitting in a stand in the dark, watching everything wake up in front of you. 
or sitting throughout the day, just seeing the, the wildlife do their thing, not having any idea you're there. It, it's, it's therapeutic in its own sense uh, once you get past the thinking about sitting there for so many hours at a time, but it's something to be said about it. Along the same lines as you, you know, I like to roll country and just keep looking over the top of the next hill and the next hill, what's over there, what's over there, you know. Just being forced to have to sit there and take it all in is, I guess, something that if I didn't have that experience, you know, I would never do. Also, you know, I have one of those, I don't know, some kind of super seat cushion that I have to sit on to be able to stay there all day. But it's a mental grinder, not only being comfortable there. You know, if you're not seeing deer and you sat there for four hours and you can only see, you know, 80 yards in a circle around you, it can be super frustrating and you just got to just grind through it. You know, I'm a testament to say I've sat there for long periods and I've said the heck with this. I'm getting out of the stand to stand up, start gathering my things and look, and there's a buck staring at me. <laughs> you know, that's happened. And that, that when you have those things happen, it kind of forces your, your mind to think about it. And that, that has helped me stay in the stand for longer periods. To me, it seems a lot like fishing, right? Like one more cast and I'm going to get the big one. That's what, that's what kind of what <laughs> yeah. I always think like 10 more minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to get it. 10 more minutes just keep doing it yep it's either one more ridge when you're out in open country or you're sitting in the tree stand you got to start thinking okay one more minute several times in a row a lot of people especially me like i'm going to missouri it's november it's going to be a rut hunt you know i love to hunt the rut big bucks anything can happen uh, just like any species but different seasons even the late season can really produce once you hone in on on what the whitetails are doing and understand what a whitetail focuses on in september you know at that time they're they're usually pretty patternable up until they lose velvet then they change patterns again and it, sometimes i can't pick them up until pre-rut and then they'll start of course checking does and then you get into rut and all hell breaks loose. Those bucks running around chasing does and being in the right spot at the right time is very magical. Then you're moving into December. Those bucks are coming off rut. There, you know, there might be a second rut that kicks in. They're still cruising somewhat looking for does, but now they're starting to shift a little bit more towards food. They're worried, starting to worry a little bit more about food and they let their guard down a little bit. December can be a great time to target some of those big mature bucks as well. Thing about late season also is a lot of people, it's a lot easier to get permission to hunt some great ground, especially if you're willing to shoot does. Yeah, there's a plethora of does out there. And, and I have found that if, if you are able to get access on some places, a lot of times they, you know, they'll ask you if you can take a doe, I'll let you take a buck. But first you got to shoot the doe before you shoot the buck. Again, more opportunity there if you're willing to put in the work. That's one of the big things for me. They really like me to come there. I shoot, you know, I try to shoot a couple does before I go home. And we eat a lot of deer throughout the year. And I kill a lot of Western gang, but I got to tell you, man, I like a corn-fed whitetail. Yeah, they're, they're hard to beat. That corn-fed whitetail, they're good tasting, that's for sure. I kind of want to circle back. You could tell us a little bit about the story of the whitetail that you killed this year. I know you've been chasing it for a little bit. You bet. Why don't you kind of walk us through how that all played out? I was deployed overseas um, in 2017 and 2018. When I got back in 18, started doing some scouting, putting up trail cameras, and I had found a buck that had a, a his right main beam had a big droop in it. So I, 
I tend to nickname my animals. It irritates some people. I'd nickname animals so I can keep track of them. And I nicknamed this buck Droopy. Never thought he'd be much of anything, but with the Droopy main beam, you know, it just kind of stuck. And that that's who that buck became. And that was in 2018. He wasn't nothing special. I figured he was a two and a half year old deer at that time. Uh, fast forward into 2019, seen that buck quite regular. Um, he did grow bit bigger but again he wasn't nothing special and I just kind of whenever I'd see him I didn't think much of him he still had the droop in his rack on the right side his main beam and didn't think much of it and as time goes on in 2020 he started to take a little bit more notice he still had the droop but he was starting to get framey he was always only a four by five, but he was starting to get more framey and started to notice him then. Uh, in 2021, he showed up again on camera and I kind of thought, you know what? This might be a buck worth putting on the list, on my target list. And at that time, he was number three on my list. And I ended up seeing him in the stand one evening. And it was one of those times when I stood up in my stand to stretch my legs because I didn't see anything for, for an hour to, hour or better and when I stood up guess who was staring at me droopy that's when I really realized you know this is a lot better deer than I thought and that was the only time I see laid eyes on him was 2021 that was the last time I seen him with my own eyes and I ended up killing my number one target buck that year uh 2022 rolled around I picked up uh, his sheds that spring and in 2022 I only got two pictures of him the entire season and that was in November during the rut and let me tell you what he he blew up he became a buck that I never thought that buck would ever be and now we're talking at that time he was six and a half years old I was figuring and then I picked him up again and in this year in the spring in 23 he just when he showed up on camera Sam I'm, I'm telling you he he went from a buck I never thought much about to a buck now he's my number one target buck and he's a seven and a half year old deer at least waiting to get results back but he might even be an eight and a half year old deer and i lost a lot of sleep on that deer this year i decided not to hunt mule deer devote my time to try to kill droopy and again you know i get one picture of this buck maybe oh on a camera every seven days i'd maybe get one or two pictures of him and then in late august he showed up on a camera and it was a really cool foggy day and he hung around in this thicket where i hung a camera and he stayed there for four hours that morning and i got several pictures of that deer and then I started thinking, you know, this, this buck is maybe killable. He is moving in the daylight hours. He, I haven't seen him with my own eyes for now. I'm going on two years. I got pictures of him. This is most I've ever had him on camera. So I dedicated my time to sitting and just try to kill that deer. And he was always in the same area on the same camera, but it just was a matter of picking the right day to sit to kill that deer. And I sat several evenings, six hours at a time, several days in a row, and he finally did. We had a cold front moving in. Uh, barometric pressures were changing. And that's a whole nother thing we could talk about is that how the weather affects these deer. But I knew it was that one of those days that that buck was going to be out there moving in the daylight and I had to be in that stand. Got in the stand stand earlier than I generally do and I sat and it wasn't 15 minutes after in the stand and I had deer filing by me the acorns were dropping they were really going to town on the acorns and and it was 6 p.m. is a magical time where I started figuring he would be coming through and it was almost like clockwork I heard a buck rubbing on the trees up ahead and couldn't see him but I could tell you know you could tell when it's a big deer rubbing on a tree and lo and behold 
time ticked by and here he'd come walking through the trees looking for acorns and I happened to be at the right spot, the right time, the right day. But the previous days before that, of course, didn't see that deer. Just just got lucky that day and finally was able to arrow him. And he's seven and a half, eight and a half year old deer. And he's just, he was been nocturnal for several years before that. So it's a, a huge feat. He's not the biggest scoring deer I've ever killed, but that's that scores aside, I don't really care about score much anymore. It's the mature quality animals. And I've killed a lot of big animals, but that whitetail for some reason really had me spun out of control. So super happy to seal the deal on that one. It, it, but at the same time, right, it's sad, sad me. Very happy to kill that deer, but the hunt and the, the thrill of trying to figure him out is gone. So there's a little bit of sadness and happiness all at the same time. Yeah, I understand that. I think it's impressive to kill a big deer like that early in the season. You know, I think that's part of the reason people wait until the rut. They tend to get those deer up on their feet, moving a little bit more. I know you said you got a little bit lucky, and obviously anytime you hunt, luck has a little to do with it, but you put the work in, right? You you went out there, you scouted, you hung the cameras, you had a good idea of what he'd like to do, and you just hedged your bet that he would do it while you were there. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, somewhere inside me had a feeling eventually it was going to happen, but honestly, I didn't think it was going to happen that night. I thought it was going to have to be into November when the rut kicks off and he maybe lets his guard down, pushing does not be in the right spot at the right time. And I think my son was hoping for the same thing because he has the rifle tag and I did not. But so he, he was, he was plum happy that I got that buck. Absolutely happy. But at the same time, I think part of him was hoping maybe he wouldn't show up so he could have a crack at him with rifle, but I beat him to the punch on that one. And that deer is going to be the cover of this. So yeah, you know, in the Black Hills of South Dakota, the, the white tails aren't like the, the deer that you think to the east, the cornbread deer, even in South Dakota, you get to the east side of the state, the deer are bigger bodied, they're bigger antlered. So to kill a deer like that in the Black Hills Protection District on the west side of the state, something to be said. Well, first I want to preface and say, I also killed my biggest deer in the early season in October, which is typically in the whitetail community is called the lull. Yeah. In my unfortunate unplanning, I had a kid in October. And so I had to go early <laughs> and make and make a choice. It was the one year that I didn't get out there in November. I was like you, I hunted it hard. It's hard when you're out there, you're not seeing a lot of deer, but you can get a pattern on this. And I was lucky enough, my hunting partner actually patterned this deer for me. And he was like, you know, if you sit here, he, he will come by. And I don't know, I was four or five days and and finally came by and I arrowed him. I think that kind of moves us into, you know, scouting whitetails and, and how it's super important. And just maybe we'll touch on that. You bet. So what I like to do, I usually, I try to run cameras year round if I can. Um, it can be tough on public land. Unfortunately, cameras like to walk away from time to time. Uh, SD cards like to go missing, but it's a gamble that you take by leaving them out there. But I've been fortunate enough in this area. I've only lost a couple cameras, but the cameras I've been able to keep up have been telling me quite a bit about the deer. It seems like they have their, I pick up different deer during the summer up until they start to shed their velvet. When they shed their velvet, I lose about half of the deer, or the bucks, I should say. I lose about half the bucks I had on camera at a regular basis as soon as they shed that velvet. They move and they pick up different areas, whether they move two or three ridge tops away or they move a mile or two away. It's hard telling. And then you'll get into the rut and you'll see bucks you've never seen before. Uh, some of your regular deer you just don't see anymore. And then you get into December and some of those bucks start coming back around again. So scouting for me is kind of a year-round thing deal to try to keep track of some of these bucks. And 
it seems like I'll get to know them great during the summer and then I lose them. And if I pick them back up in, in uh, late season is great. Sometimes they just don't come back around. I'm sure they fall to other hunters in the area, being public land. You just never know what happens to them. But the most time I can spend out there with cameras, sitting on the county roads with the spotting scope glassing, um, it usually gives me a pretty good idea what deer are in the area and then try to pin it down to a certain buck and and what ridges they're running, what draws they're bedding in, what where their feeding habits are. Sometimes I got to forget about the the actual bucks in the area and just focus on learning everything I can about that chunk of land and and hope that the deer will be there once season starts. A couple things popped out to me. One, you kind of got to understand whitetails and whitetails in my mind are are like a fringe edge animal. You know, anytime the terrain is changing from tall trees to shorter trees, you know, they like to just kind of work that edge where they feel safe in the cover, but they can see out there into maybe a little bit more wide open. And then their bedding is something that they are super, they bed there for a reason, right? It's whatever that is, the predominant wind, uh, thick cover, whatever that is. And they tend to return to the bedding areas. And I'm sure you got a lot of your camera set up there. And then a lot of places that were hunting these whitetails, you know, there's a lot of agriculture, but even in the heavy woods, their food sources are changing. So you need to be kind of tuned into that because when that, whatever they harvest the crop, you know, those deer are moving on or the acorns drop and they clean those up, you know, then they move on to something else. So you need to be aware of that as you're scouting. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the acorns is a huge magnet for me. And it seems like it's about a every other year deal here in South Dakota. It's about every other year the, the crop, acorn crop is really good and it'll last on a good year. You might get two weeks of, of good acorn feed and that's when I'm really in those hardwoods sticking to that. But on those years when those acorns really don't produce, then I'm focusing more on the alfalfa fields, the crop fields, and like you said, the edges of cover where they like to hang out. I try to stay out of their bedding area as much as I can and try to catch those deer in the transition areas between bed and feed. Because as you know, you know, you bugger up a, a bedding area, you might not see the buck you're hoping to get for the rest of the season. Well, and I think that brings me to another point for us. When I'm out hunting and I'm hunting, basically my hunting partner spots that he's cleaned up for me, you work far and then move in as the rut progresses, you know, cause you don't want to burn these stands out. But if you're just coming in and you only have whatever, five, six days, you know, you could be a lot more aggressive cause you're not going to continually try and hunt these places, uh, day after day. Yeah. That's, uh, when I hang a stand, you know, I got some of my favorite spots and like you say, burning out a tree. If, if I have to sit in that stand more than three times, I start worrying a little bit that I burned it out. So I, I have different stand locations, wait for the perfect wind and move around in those areas, but try to have alternate alternative locations. So I'm not putting too much pressure on those. Deer. And it can be a bit frustrating on public land. You know, you think you have it all figured out. You got the perfect stand location. You think, you know, where the buck's bedding. You think, you know, where the buck is feeding because you're getting pictures of that that buck in this transition zone uh, opening day rolls around you roll in there you make sure you're you're early you get up in the tree stand you settle in and you hear somebody else come in and and climb up a tree stand 40 yards away you just you, you never know what you're going to get if you have access to private land uh, absolutely amazing because you you can pick and choose when and where and how you hunt 
and it's only up to you to to screw it up right but on the public land there's there's a whole different realm there you got to think about you you're not the only one out there and those deer know it too well the one thing for me is different about hunt whitetails is you have to plan your entry and your exit strategy right like i never think about that when i'm out chasing a elk you just go wherever they are and when you're hunting whitetails you know they have a small core area and they're super tuned into that. I agree with you, like going into your stand and coming out, you're laying a lot of ground scent and they'll pick that up mm-hmm. and be like, I don't think so, guy. <laughs> I think that's part of what forces me also to sit in the stand a long time because you just don't climb down and go to your truck, have a sandwich and climb back up in there. Now put twice the, the ground scent down on your way to your stand and they're twice as likely to pick you up there. Yeah. Yeah, my son this year, you know, he first time he's been sitting in the stand with me, he's 12. And I told him, you got to watch where you walk. And when we were going to the stand location, it was the direction we were walking and the location of how to get in there was a little bit backwards than what you would think it would be in his mind. And I told him, I said, we got to watch where we're going. We've got to watch where we're walking, make sure we're not following deer trails and everything else. And we got up in the stand and we had a young buck come by and he walked right under the stand. And when he got to the spot where we had walked in, the buck stopped all alert and started sniffing and following exactly where we walked. And that was a good lesson for my son. You know, I told him how they do that, but he got to see it firsthand. That's something I could do better with wearing high rubber boots in and out of the tree stand, but generally I don't. But it's always amazing that those those whitetail, they pick up on every step you make in and out of that stand. And, and mature deer, once they figure that out, they just, they don't come back to that area. So you, you got to pick a route that you're coming in where you know the deer aren't going to be walking and and hope you play it the right way and hope the wind is in your favor. That's, that's the huge part, the wind, especially. Especially in these thicker woods where you're not used to, you know, there's not as much thermal activity in there as you would think. And you really got to trust yourself with a predominant wind. Also the way that you access a stand may not be the way that you get back to your truck either. A lot of the stands I'm hunting, I'm hunting them coming to food. And if I go back out there, they're out there. Yeah. I have to swing wide and, and make a big loop so that they don't see me. So I got a chance at them at the next night when they're coming back out there to eat again. Yeah, some of my stands are strictly evening sets, afternoon evening sets, because I can't get in there in the mornings. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The The walk out is a lot longer than the walk in just because you have to avoid the deer on the way out. Part of the thing, you know, people say about elk hunting, you can call them, you can interact with them. And to a certain extent, whitetails are the same way. You want to just touch on that a little bit, your rut strategy that you have? Yeah. When you're starting to get into, uh, I look at late October, beginning part of November, is when I will start. If I'm going to do any calling, that's when I'll start doing it. And I'll start using soft grunts, light tickling of antlers, a little bit of rattling. Uh, those deer right now, those bucks are cruising around. They're, they're checking out other bucks. They're kind of establishing a pecking order. Uh, when they hear two bucks sparring, a lot of times that gets the curiosity up, kind of like an elk. You know, you you get those deer to come in and they, they want to check out what's going on. Who's this? Who's these bucks over here? Who's sparring? Are, are they bigger than me? Uh, are they something I need to be worried about? Late October, especially, I have really good luck with doing some light rattling. And when I'm starting to get in closer to rut and those bucks are cruising now, really checking does, I kind of put the rattling antlers aside and I stick more towards an estrus bleat or followed by buck grunts. That seems to work really well. 
Um, I have used rattling during those times too more aggressive and it has worked for your more aggressive bucks, but I've noticed some of your bucks will kind of shy away from that in my area. And then when you're getting that back in when the rut's over and now post rut is just strictly doe bleeds and maybe occasional buck grunt, but generally try to focus more on a doe that maybe didn't get bred and the bucks hear that and they want to come in and check that out. So it's kind of, you know, just like calling elk, if you will, there's certain times and certain ways for certain calls that's going to work better for you. The Rockcast is powered by the number one GPS hunting app in the industry, Onyx Hunt. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. It is like calling elk, you know, you can do blind calling and sometimes that'll work, but it's better when there's a targeted approach. You already know the animals there. You kind of give them what it wants to hear, what it's kind of looking for and to get them to come and close that distance for you. Yes. Yeah, there's uh, you, know, you just never know if if the deer's in the area, you kind of know what to do. But the blind calling has worked for me on several occasions. You just never know what's going to show up, and that's that's the exciting part of it. And I've used a decoy. I wouldn't say extensively, but I do mess with it depending on the time of year, and it can be super fun or it can be super frustrating. <laughs> yeah. They do interact with it. You know, sometimes they'll knock it to pieces and just keep on running. Sometimes they'll look at it and be like, "I don't think so, guy," and just be out. And then sometimes it works like it's a, the script and they just come nose to nose and there you are. Easy money. Yeah, it's uh, the decoys has been hit or miss for me as well. It just got to find the right buck on the right day. And it's pretty magical how they come in and everything works for you. We covered pretty much about what we could today. I hope everybody gets a little bug in their mind about uh, whitetails chasing them maybe closer to home out west or hidden to the Midwest. And you know, the rut when you hunt elk is, is September. But when you hunt whitetails, as you start to go south, the rut goes later and later. So you can continue to push your season out, head south, and the weather will be a little better down there too. Yeah, a lot of opportunity out there for sure. All right, Jared, I appreciate you making some time and good luck to you and your son. Hey, I appreciate that. If anybody wants to find you, where can they find you at, uh, Jared? Um, 
on rockslide.com and then also you can look me up on instagram or facebook all right jared what's your instagram uh you can find me at jared underscore bloomgren or on facebook through my personal account jared bloomgren or bloomgren's trigger addiction on facebook as well nice all right i appreciate you coming on and taking some time for us there thank you i appreciate the time that you spent with me as well and look forward to more all right moving on to reviews we're lucky enough to catch up with Zach Harold. He just dropped his newest review video on the Stone Glacier M7's rain set. If you guys haven't had a chance to check it out, head on over to Rock Slide's YouTube channel and give it a go. But he's going to give us a little rundown of how he used it and what he liked about it. Welcome to the show, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. I appreciate it. What made you kind of go with the the Stone Glacier rain gear? So I, I think one thing... Uh, can be said about the M7 set is it's it's not like you would look at using the M7 set to replace your rain gear from September. It's not just a rain shell, okay? It, it is it's a fleeced back set that is waterproof. And the reason that I was looking specifically into the M7 set is because when you start getting on these later hunts where you're walking through snow all day and brush and all that kind of stuff, I knew from experience that a regular rain shell starts to struggle with that type of stuff, whether it be just because it's too thin of material or you're just, you know, maybe you're falling down or what, who knows what it could be. Um, but from my experience, your typical rain shells are just going to be for like, Hey, it's raining for the next 30 minutes. We better throw our stuff on. Okay. Everything's it's done raining. I'm going to leave the pants on cause the grass might be a little wet. Now the M7 set on the op on the other side is like, Hey, I'm going to put these pants on when I leave the truck over top of my long johns and they're going to stay on all day. They're going to keep my, especially walking in like snow and stuff like that. I walked a lot of miles in that M7 set in the snow, you know, and it was great because the gators obviously kept the snow from coming up, up the pants, but then the pants themselves are waterproof, but they're also durable enough that I know, I mean, barring like ripping them on barbed wire fence or something like that, the chances of me ripping them is, is little to none. So they wear like your normal pants would wear, but they're waterproof and they're fleece backed. So the whole thought behind getting them was these late season hunts that you're out there in the cold and the wind and the wet all day. And you know, you got to have a barrier to, to deal with that type of weather. Why don't you go ahead and tell us some of the features of the M7 jacket? So the M7 jacket, uh, number one, I am, I'm five foot six. I typically wear a medium in most jackets that I wear. Um, I would say the M7 jacket uh, runs slightly big. So the medium was a little bit bigger than other mediums that I have. Uh, it has an articulated hood, uh, zips up all the way by your nose if you want it to. You're able to adjust the hood so that it fits differently with uh, bungee. It's got zipper hand pockets as well as I believe it has chest pockets too. Pull the bungee along the waist cord and then you can Velcro the the cuffs shut as well. And man, I used it all over. Some of the hunts were like negative 18 without counting wind chill. Then I used it in like kind of drizzly rainy days in Canada, snow blowing sideways. And I, I literally never got wet while I was using it. Sounds amazing. Does it have pit zips? 
So it has pit zips, and I'm not a huge fan of pit zips. Sometimes, I, I if I'm going to be very active in a jacket, I love pit zips. But I often get so hot that I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt under my jacket, and not a long sleeve. So the cold zipper along the inside of my arms just is kind of uncomfortable. Then the top itself weighs one pound six ounces. I will say again, it kind of going back to what I said at the beginning. It's different than your normal rain gear. You know where you're normal rain gear jacket will compress down really small this the, this stuff doesn't compress down real small so once again that is kind of playing into the actual purpose of the m7 set is not just to be a rain shell right this isn't a packable set of rain gear this is a durable outer shell exactly and, and obviously you can pack it because I, I do all the time but it's not like a man i'm gonna throw that in my backpack because it's going to be super waterproof. Absolutely. But if you're like, I need lightweight and I'm going way back in and it's September, I would assume you would use just a rain shell. I know you mentioned the, you use the pants a lot more than the jacket. What are some of the features of the pants? Yes. I think the reason I ended up using the pants more is if I'm outside and I'm walking in snow or something like that, but it's not snowing, then I'll be wearing like an active layer up top, but I'll still want that waterproof layer on the bottom. Like what I found was um, the pants did excellent when it was, you know, just after it rained and I'm walking through brush and vegetation, or if there's snow to walk through, you know, post hole and things like that. Uh, the pants did awesome. I literally never had a single issue with them other than that my, my legs would get hot, but they have those, the hip zips, you know, they go from basically the hip all the way a little bit down past the knee. And man, you can just dump heat like crazy with that. And I really appreciated that because when it came down to rather than sweating, I was able to just, you know, obviously um, open those up. Then I was able to regulate my body temperature. I was going to ask if you wanted to touch on uh, the adjustability of the pant how that all works out. You know, it's in it's in line with their de Havilland pant. I think it's it, it's a it's a great concept. And then on top of it, I mean, let's be honest, when somebody goes in the mountains, especially if they're going for four or five days, by the end of that fifth day, they probably are a little bit slimmer than when they left. I, I inherently like this is how it goes. <laughs> and so the inside of that velcro, uh, essentially one side of the zipper is all velcro. And so you're able to pull that off, move it in inward and outward so that you have a uh, different fitting pant. And the great part is it's not just like tightening a belt down really tight and having it all bunched up around the waist because you're moving the whole zipper and it allows it to kind of still fit you the way that it needs to. Yeah. sounds super innovative. I think it's a great idea. And I, and I used it. Uh, I mean, I would be out there literally on the trail and be like, Oh man, my, my pants are, they feel too big or they feel too tight. And I would adjust it literally while I was there, you know? Yeah. That's pretty amazing that it's that simple. You just stop for a minute. Yeah. And just make your adjustment right then. Again, like as far as the pants go, they uh, same as the jacket is you're not you're not buying this set for compressibility and things like that. It's just they don't compress real small. But literally what I found myself doing is I would put it on before I even left the truck 
and I would end up wearing it all day. And just me saying that, typically you wouldn't do that with your rain shell. You know what I mean? Unless you're like hunting in Alaska or something like that and it's raining all freaking day. <laughs> you know, the, w the way this M7 set is designed, I, I, I would have no issues hunting with it in Alaska all day. I would say the fit on the pants themselves, it seems like they're a little bit short in the leg. Um, and I'm not a very tall person. I notice that the size small pants, while they fit my waist just fine, they seem to be like two inches too short. Maybe it's like that for everybody, maybe not. But from my experience, I do wish the pants were slightly longer. So I, w I think I would probably move up a size of pants. Um, and then just obviously use that Velcro system so that the pants fit around my waist better. Oh, good information. After you used it for this season, did you find any any ways to improve it, I guess? I think that the main improvement that I would look at doing is the, the pockets on the pants themselves. And again, maybe this has to do with the way the pants fit my body, right? Uh, that could possibly be. But the pockets just seem a little bit hard to get my hands in and out of. Yeah, they're not like the your typical cargo pocket, right? Where you can open the flap and it's got excess material for your pocket. Pockets are actually sewn on the inside of your pants and they have a waterproof zipper because they're waterproof pants. But when you try to put your hand in those pockets, it just seems like the fabric is stretched a little bit tight. So it's kind of hard to get your hands in and out and whatever you're trying to get out of your pockets. But other than that, that was that's literally the only thing that I would improve on. All right, Zach, I appreciate it. If you guys want to learn more about the M7 set, you can go over and look at his review video. Again, it's on the Rockslide YouTube channel. And there's also a thread. I'll have a link in the show notes on Rockslide where we're talking about it. People want to reach out to you, Zach? Where can they find you at? So they can actually email me directly on uh, Rockslide. For whatever reason, somebody's listening to the podcast and they're not part of Rockslide. You can hit me up on Battle Mountain Media Instagram or just shoot me an email. Uh, Zach at BattleMountainMedia.com. All right, Zach. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Staying with Stone Glacier Reviews, we also caught up with Jake Potter to talk about his review of the Arvo hoodie and 208 pant. Welcome to the show, Jake. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, the Avro and 206 pant, they're uh, lightweight, early season, I would say, pair. Uh, the Avro is the shirt, the 206 is the pant. Yeah, the Avro has really good uh, UPF rating for wearing it in the sun. So it's kind of like a, you could wear it as, some guys wear those uh, Columbia sun shirts and stuff. You could use that, the Avro instead, especially out fishing. I took it steelhead fishing, did really good. No sunburns. So what's the material it's made out of there, Jake? So it's 100% polyester, and then it's got the polygene treatment. So for odor, which did really good. Wear it, I wore it three or four days in a row on an elk hunt, and I didn't think I stunk. How does Stone Glacier list that? Is it a base layer or a mid layer? So they list it as a base layer, and then in the summer I wore it as a, you know, as my outer layer. With I'd run it, I'd run it both ways with nothing underneath of it, and then uh, with. Uh, lightweight merino underneath it too so kind of like a thin mid late layer for you yep yep and then in the early part of october when it was getting a little chillier i'd run it as a mid layer with you know a jacket over the top of it and that has a three-quarter zip yeah super deep three-quarter zip for dumping heat easy to get on and off you want to talk about the weight of it super lightweight it was nine right around nine ounces in a size large it's got a hood with the uh, articulated fit so you can still glass with it on uh, did real good keeping the sun off your neck so that was handy and and then, uh, yeah, the only negative, no chest pocket. I, I'm a big fan of chest pockets. So that was the only only negative I had about the whole shirt there. What about the 206 pant? 206 pant was awesome. Super comfortable. Uh, it's got their four-way stretch. Uh, 
Uh, it's got a little bit of a DWR. Uh, did good keeping water off. Four-way stretch. That's a spandex and nylon. Yep. Super lightweight. I think it weighed uh, size large was uh, right around 15 ounces. But the coolest feature on the 206 pant were the inner thigh zips uh, to dump heat. Put them on the inside, which is something I hadn't seen before as opposed to the outside. So really did a good job of keeping uh, brush and stuff from getting at your legs. And I think you create more heat on the inside of your thigh than the outside. So it did a really good job dumping heat. Yeah, I've never used an inside uh, zip either. Uh, sounds pretty interesting. What about the pocket layout on them? The pocket layout, Stone Glacier says it's a uh, no frills pant, but I thought they did a good job with the pockets. They got one right side zippered pocket on the thigh, and then your two front pockets, obviously, and then two back pockets with the uh, tapered, I don't know, cover over the top of them. Like the material goes down over the top, keep stuff in there. But yeah, they did, they were good pockets. The right side zipper pocket was super deep. Keep uh, whatever you want in there and keep it in there. It won't fall out with the zipper. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. They went with the single pocket instead of a pocket on each side. I don't know. I really, I only use one pocket anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter, but it does seem interesting design feature. I think they tried to save a little weight, you know, doing that, but I, I don't know how much weight you really save by adding a zipper on the other side and some material, but predominantly right-handed, so it worked out for me. But I can see if you're left-handed, it could be an issue, I guess. And it has a little bit of a DWR coating on it? A little bit of a DWR did did uh, did good in the summer, you know, light dew on the ground, beating that up. And it dries super fast, so that was another positive of it. How about going forward? You're going to be using them next year? Is that your plan? Sure, I'll definitely be using them, you know, late spring and then all through the summer. They're super nice. I'll actually probably end up wearing those 206 pants to work a lot. That's one uh, one thing I hope next year they come out with more colors. They're kind of a khaki color, but a green and a gray would be would be really nice in that pant as well. So I can't wait to see them in person at some of the shows coming up. I'll be looking forward to it. appreciate you making some time for us there, Jake. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. If you have any questions for Jake, you can click on the link in the show notes, or you can find him on Rockslide as jpot3, or on Instagram, also as jpot3. Making a quick stop in the action den at Howl for Wildlife. No surprise, coming out of Utah is Senate Bill 3117, sponsored by Senator Mike Lee. The bill would authorize the sale of large swaths of federally managed public lands from across the West and then earmark that land for high-density housing development projects. This doesn't sound very appealing to you or you want more information, head on over to Howl for Wildlife or click on the link in the show notes. As hunting seasons are winding down and some are just kicking off, here's a reminder that if you've harvested a trophy and took a quality photo, get it entered into Rockslide's photo contest. You can find the rules in the forum at rockslide.com. That's R-O-K-S-L-I-D-E dot com. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver. 